Just note, first of all, I know the Christ candle keeps blowing out from the air conditioning, and we tried to turn it off, and we will relight it before we do the passing of the light. But that is how things go. <laughs> um, all right, as I thought about in our few minutes together here, uh, the la- all through Advent, we've been walking from Matthew through parts of the Christmas story, and this evening we heard from Luke chapter 2 about it. And as I thought uh, through just what what's the thing that I feel like we should meditate on here tonight on Christmas Eve, I decided to do something that might actually be a little bit risky <laughs> um, and might be challenging in some ways. Um, and here's, here's why. Because there is this particular picture of the nativity that we just are we've grown up with we're naturally in love with we have them in our houses and I mean I have one we got it I got it from in Africa years ago and it's it's great and it's got like a musk ox for the animal and stuff and um you know I I mean I remember as a kid I was in one of those living nativity scenes one year where you would do it but we have this picture of the nativity in our heads and um And if you've been around the church for a while, you probably know that there are some parts of it that it's kind of common knowledge probably aren't accurate, especially the stuff with the wise men, who we talked about uh, two weeks ago on Sunday morning, that they would have been there months later. They weren't there for the night of Jesus's birth and all the other details about there probably weren't three of them and stuff like that. But, um, But I want to, in a more fundamental way, kind of argue that maybe our mental image of the nativity isn't that. It's not what we're used to picturing. Based off of what we read this morning in Luke 2, especially, that the Bible's account is probably actually about something that's significantly different, and that's risky. And the reason it's risky is for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is just because I think that um, we, as people who seek to trust in Scripture, can wrestle when some expectation or thing that we think we know about the way the Bible tells the story of Jesus' birth Um, gets challenged because we feel like our trust in scripture is being challenged, and that's very much not what I want to do this evening. In fact, we're going to be very much digging into Luke 2 to talk about these events, but I see that, I, I recognize that, and it's hard because we like our traditions, and I appreciate these traditions, and despite a little bit of what I'm going to say later tonight, this is not me suggesting that you should like go throw out parts of your nativity scene because they're inaccurate. Don't be that person, and I don't want to be that person, but I do think it's actually worth kind of challenging that mental picture, particularly because that mental picture for us doesn't feel real most of the time. It feels like a fairy tale. You even see it with like the serene, like where's that serene light coming out, right? You know, shining down on them, you know, and there's that star that's like right overhead and it's basically like Christmas lights in the sky and everything is uh, pure and unsullied. And importantly for this evening, it's detached from the surrounding world. It feels like this event that happens in isolation, this event that is almost once upon a time And in challenging that, that fairy tale sense that we have of that image of the nativity, I have actually found a great deal of beauty and encouragement as it's made more real. But for tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some details of the text that we just heard from Luke 2. Then we're going to just say, what does all that mean? And then we're going to ask, what does that mean for us? And how can that encourage us this Christmas season? But first, 
Um, we're going to look at a few verses here from Luke 2, and here's what I want you to do, okay? Forget everything you know. Forget that picture. Take, you can take it off the screen now, Chris. <laughs> Everyone's not staring at it the whole time. And kind of put on your detective hat, and let's read a couple of verses, okay? First, for the background, if you haven't been with us over the course of Advent as we've walked through the Christmas story, so uh, Mary who's engaged to Joseph, ends up pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And while Joseph initially um, reaches kind of the obvious idea about what that means, you know, the angel of the Lord comes and explains to him, and so they are engaged. And that means they as a couple are also facing a great deal of shame in ancient Israel um, because, you know, everyone has certain understandings of what's going on there, and they're willingly bearing that. And at the same time as Mary's pregnant and they're engaged, Uh, The Roman Empire conducts a census to count everybody so that they know how much to tax different provinces. And so the way they're doing this in Judea is that they have everyone go back to their family hometown to register for the census. And that's where our story picks up. So first, Luke 2.4. We see Mary and Joseph. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So we talked a little bit about Bethlehem last week, but Bethlehem is a tiny town in this world. It's not a major city. It's maybe three or 400 people total, which even in the ancient world, it was a small place. So just file that away. And also, while we kind of have our detective hats on and are noticing things, this is Joseph's hometown. His family is from here. And this is very much a place in the world where that has long-lasting implications. Probably Joseph has relatives and family members living in Bethlehem. And this is a world where you could show up at like your second cousin's house and they'd feel like we owe you these family rights to care for you. So, all right, note those details. We'll skip down a few verses to verse 7 and we get the birth of Jesus. It says, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we've got to drill down on a couple details of this one, but first we've got to talk about the ending of that verse, which in the ESV is translated, there's no place for them in the inn. Now, this is where you get, like if you ever watch a Christmas play, a lot of times there's like this mean, grumpy innkeeper, right? Who's like, no, go away, there's no room for you, pregnant lady. But, um, and this is where I'm going to get a little nerdy, so I apologize. But, so, the Greek word for inn Um, it can mean one of two things. It is used to refer to, in that world, what we might think of as an inn, but it's not like a Motel 6. In big cities, where you'd have a lot of travelers, they'd have these common houses. And basically, you would have the first floor would be like where all the animals, your donkeys or horses that you were traveling on would stay, and then over that, you'd have a big common room where like 20 people would sleep together. That's an inn um, in the ancient world. Or... um, More commonly, the word just means an upper room. In fact, at the end of Luke, when Luke talks about the Last Supper, if you are familiar with that story where Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, it's that word that's used to describe the room that they meet in and have the Last Supper together. That's because what you would have if you were a like middle-class person in the ancient world. So you'd have your main floor of your house, you'd have an upper room, and you would stay there and sleep there. But then if you had company, you'd put them up in the upper room. And, um, and that's the word that, that, that's rendered there. And it's, in fact, it's, that's where the idea of an inn comes from because that was a rare thing in the ancient world. And so it would be like, oh yeah, it's like the upper room, but you know, in a big city, kind of extrapolated out for travelers. 
all right? And that means in this text, it's almost certainly the second um, of those things because Bethlehem is a tiny village. So probably when it says there's no room for them in the upper room, what Luke is trying to say is that Mary and Joseph are staying with relatives because again, Joseph's from Bethlehem and that would make sense. But for whatever reason, they're not staying in the upper room. Maybe because there's some older relatives that are also staying with them for the census. This is a world where if you were older, there was enormous honor that was given to you and even being pregnant, you know, that wouldn't overrule that. Or maybe it's because there's um, a mark of stigma and shame that's attached specifically to Mary and Joseph because she's pregnant and they're not yet married, but there's not room for them there. Um, you might be thinking, but wait a minute, file that away. Two other things to note. It says he's wrapped in swaddling clothes and it's worth saying that is just what everyone did to newborn infants in that world. That's not an unusual thing, but Right after a baby was born, they would wrap them to kind of keep their arms and legs straight. And he's laid in a manger, and that does just mean manger. <laughs> There's nothing weird about that, a, a thing that animals would eat out of, all right? Filing those things away in your kind of detective work, let's look at one more piece of our story before we move on, and let's look at the shepherds. So the angels come and tell the shepherds about this birth, and then it says this. It says, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So, two more details I want to point out to you from that. And these might seem, the first one might seem obvious, but first of all, the shepherds come and find Mary and Joseph, and then they leave them where they find them. You might think, so? But just file that away. We'll talk about that again in a minute. And then the other thing to notice is it sure sounds like there's people around. <laughs> this is a thing that even as a kid, I remember being a little confused by, where it says, um, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And I think what I ended up being told as a kid is that meant they went and like banged on people's doors in the middle of the night and told them about what had happened. But it sounds more like there's just a group of people around when the shepherds show up that they share it with. And Mary treasures these things in her heart and everyone else wonders. All right. So, that's, we've noticed some details, some things about the story, right? And you might be wondering, like, okay, where is this all going? How does that all fit together? Like, what, what's going on with the mental picture I have? And this is where I just want to say this is the risky part, okay? Because I'm going to suggest what's probably a better mental picture for us to have. But I want to just say, this isn't 100% certain, all right? There's, you know, there's debate about these things. And I can, you know, if, you're, if you really want to, I can tell you books that you could read about this stuff. But... Um, to fit this together, let me do this. Let me give you a picture of a typical house in Jesus' world. This is what a typical house, if you ha were wealthy enough to have an upper room, would have looked like in Jesus' world. So we already talked about there's an upper room where the family would stay, but where you'd have guests that would stay. Um, and then while you were doing that, you would sleep on the main floor. And in the main floor, what you'd usually have is a division where you'd have an upper part of the main floor. That's where you kind of cooked and cleaned and lived and stuff. And then you had the lower part of the main floor where you kept your animals. So in Jesus's world, uh, if you hadn't, like a cow, that was the difference between you, being, you starving to death and you being middle class, right? This is 
a much poorer society than ours, and so basically everybody lived with their animals. The idea of separate stables was just not a thing, because if a bandit came or if some wild animal came and killed your animals, you, your whole family could starve to death that winter. I mean, it's still, in fact, in poorer and more nomadic parts of the Middle East, you would find exactly this structure for houses. And even if you're really rich and you have a sort of stable, it would be just like a carport that was attached to your to your house where you would keep the animals. Because again, you would want to look out for them and keep caring for them. So what Matthew's readers would probably have pictured is something more like this. Joseph and Mary are staying with relatives. For whatever reason, they don't get the upper room because there's other relatives who are around. And Mary goes into labor while they're staying with them. Now, this is a whole other discussion, but by kind of ancient Israelite customs, uh, childbirth would make everything that the discharges touched unclean and ceremonially unclean, which meant you couldn't like eat off of it. You, you know, you had to go through all of these rituals to purify it. So it would actually be a normal thing if a woman went into labor to go down into the lower part of the house where the animals were and have her give birth there. And that might seem really gross to us, but remember these people didn't understand germ theory or any of, you know, they didn't have those ways of thinking about it. That was actually a pretty common thing to do because otherwise it would make it so that you couldn't live in the house. And since the upper room is occupied, probably Mary is down there giving birth. But, and this is where it really challenges, I think, the mental picture that I grew up with and the mental picture we all have of the nativity, that almost certainly means Mary and Joseph weren't alone while this was happening. It means that family was around, that presumably some of Joseph's female relatives were there helping with the childbirth, which was just what you did in the ancient world, right? Women would come alongside other women and help them give birth. And, um, you know, probably the male relatives are sitting around joking and trying to keep the kids from seeing anything too scandalous. And, um, you know, and then after the birth, probably the women are sitting around sharing the stories about their births, because that's a thing that human beings have always done. And the men are probably, you know, telling Joseph about how much, how little sleep he's going to get and offering him a cigar. That's not a thing in the ancient world. But, I mean, it, was, it would have been something much more like that, something much more familiar and normal. And that also makes more sense of what we said about the shepherds. So first of all, like we said, the shepherds came and they leave Mary and Joseph where, where they are. And one of the biggest problems with the traditional nativity scene, and interestingly, people from the Middle East have pointed this out even today, is that if the shepherds found a woman who had just given birth in the middle of nowhere with nowhere to help, no one to help her, and then they left, they'd be really bad dudes. <laughs> Like in this world, what you would do, you know, if that had happened, what they would have done is said, come to our house. <laughs> you know, like you're, you know, you're someone who needs help. Come live with my family and let us take care of you. Um, and that fits with the way the shepherds tell everyone who's there about what the angels had announced to them. That, again, that just fits with the idea that this is happening in a home with people around. Okay, so I think some of you are like, oh, this is cool, and some of you are like, this, I don't like this, and I don't know about this. Here's why I walked through all of that. Here's why I'm suggesting that that picture is actually more biblical and more helpful. Here's why I want to talk about it. Because what that does is it makes the birth of Jesus more ordinary, which actually makes it both more real and more powerful. 
It makes the birth of Jesus more ordinary, which makes it both more real and more powerful. And I mean ordinary in the sense of human and also specifically in the sense of poor and not not wealthy. Uh, Jesus's birth was like other human births. That's part of the point of the incarnation. More generally, all of the like no crying and everything is silent. I have been there when all three of my bio kids were born and I will tell you that it was beautiful and bloody and loud and, um, and hard. That, that, and Jesus was very much born like that with all of the pain and all of the rejoicing and all of the physical stuff that happens with childbirth. And the only noteworthy thing about it in the Bible's account is simply that it was not a birth into privilege, that Mary and Joseph aren't even living in their own house. They're not able to give birth in the privacy of an upper room, but they're having to give birth the way that an ordinary poor person in their world would have. And in fact, that is exactly the thing that is so shocking to the shepherds. So the angels come and they, they announce this like, you know, God's salvation is coming, glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace on those on whom his favor rests. They, you know, they say, go find this baby who's wrapped in swaddling cloths, which is just a way of them recognizing that he's just been born. And so they come to this house and they find this newborn baby. And the thing that is amazing to them is that angels came and announced the birth of this child whose birth would have looked otherwise utterly familiar to them. The shepherds probably would have their own children. They're not well off, right? They don't have upper rooms. Like, there's a good chance that their kids were also born in stables just like this. I mean, maybe even some of them laid in mangers. Maybe they're thinking about their own births. And so they're seeing this infant whose birth is so utterly relatable, so like theirs, except being heralded by the angels as the coming of God's Messiah. And that's the thing that causes them to wonder and be amazed. So like we said, that should do two things. That, should, that ordinary birth should, first of all, make this more real for us. When we talk about the incarnation, when we talk about God becoming a human being, that means he becomes a human being with all the stuff that comes along with it. I feel like that's part of why I struggle with the fairy tale kind of nativity scene because that doesn't feel like a, a human birth. That feels surreal or fantastical. But Jesus' birth was very much like ours. That if you have seen the, you know, if you've gotten to be there for a birth, like God went through that. It's not a fairy tale or a fantasy. It is real with human blood and sweat and tears. And just, just the, the thing I'm saying is just like, what, what you want is the sense of like all of the, 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 the worry and chaos and all of, the, all of the stuff that goes on surrounding that. Like God entered into all of that. Makes it more real. And it also gives it more power to speak to our lives. It gives it more power for us to recognize the fact that God, in becoming a human being, does so in a way that intersects with our ordinary lives. So I remember years ago uh, reading a book that first kind of challenged my image of the nativity and argued for a lot of this stuff. Um, and I read it maybe, I think it was like in a November, and I got to Christmas, and I found myself thinking about it. And I remember just being at a family Christmas get-together. And it was just, you know, it was the kids are running around and, you know, 
cousins are beating on each other and laughing and playing and, you know, that, that uncle is saying stuff that I'm trying not to say anything in response to and there's all of the warmth and all of the chaos of this family get-together. And I just remember having this moment where I'm sitting there and I'm like, Jesus basically came into this except like he'd be born out in the garage right now. <laughs> that just as real as this moment is, like it is a situation like this that Jesus entered into on that first Christmas night. And that means that, that, that the things that we're celebrating here are not things that exist in isolation from that ordinary daily life. It's not that Jesus was born in some building off in the middle of nowhere that's serene and special, so I have to go to some like church building to encounter him. It's not that he's born in this sort of spiritual fairy tale world, and so I have to get in this kind of spiritual fairy tale frame of mind in order to experience his presence. Jesus entered into our world with everything that that entails, and that means that when I think about what it means for for me to celebrate his birth and to encounter him, then I need to be thinking about encountering him in this world that I live in that is so similar to the one that he entered. I'd encourage you to maybe reflect on that tonight or tomorrow as you have some of that time, as you look around at, you know, kids that are laughing and playing, as you look around at family, as you sit in your home to reflect on the reality that, that Christianity is not incarnate only in this separate religious spiritual sphere, but it is incarnate into that ordinary world with all of the like meal prep and dirty dishes and babies that need their diapers changed and arguments among relatives and all of that that goes with it, Jesus is born into and enters into that. And then our invitation is to wrestle with what it means for us as he comes and meets us in the midst of that. So that is the thought that I'd encourage you to reflect on, that ordinary birth of Jesus and the way that that changes everything.